0: But the other part is you need to be really, you need to have an attitude of benevolence towards the people. And you need to say, look, I really want you to flourish, but in this environment for you to flourish, you need to do this. And really the purpose of kids, that's more important than you, Mm -hmm. but I'm not diminishing you either. I really, really want you to flourish. But if if, if push comes to shove though, the, the mission is what matters.
1: I'm Andy Vasily, and today on the show, we'll explore the themes of leadership and learning as it relates to the role of instructional coaching in organizations. Well-known author and presenter, Dr. Jim Knight, joins me on the show to share his thoughts.
0: You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily.
1: So Jim Knight has been on my podcast two times previously. I've loved those conversations. And the first one in, I think it was January 2021, we talked about Jim's life and kind of his journey into the work that he has ultimately devoted his life to, which is instructional coaching. But we really explored early days in Jim's life and, and what that journey was like. And in the second conversation, we talked about the first 90 days of coaching in a school year. And in both of these episodes, we really did take a deep dive into the work that Jim has done in the field of instructional coaching for the past two decades. And in the conversations, he shared great insight into what instructional coaching is and how the best coaches work alongside educators to bring out their very best in order to have a positive impact on student learning. Although Jim and I will do a review of instructional coaching in our conversation today, the focus of our discussion is more about Jim's recent learning in relation to his own research, what it is he feels most compelled to share with the world through his work, and how schools and their leaders best support coaches in order to help them thrive within their roles. Here is Jim doing a short intro into who he is and the work he does, and I think this will really help set the frame for the rest of the conversation today. Okay, Jim, it's fantastic to have you back on the show for a third time. Uh, Our first two episodes were In January 2021 and September 2021. So many of the leaders listening to this and educators will know your work for sure. But for the ones who are not familiar with your work, can you just share a little bit about yourself to let them know who you are, where you're from, and the work you do?
0: I'd be happy to, and it's great to have this conversation. I love the other the other two. I hope you've got some famous celebrity. I've always Sports athlete, celebrity, I've always admired coming up soon, so I can pick up on that too. But um uh, So I would say I grew up in Canada. I'm a Canadian with dual citizenship. I have American citizenship now. And I work with students with learning disabilities. I used a bunch of research-based practices that uh, really helped me reach out to kids with learning disabilities. I became a professional developer in that approach. And even though I got nice evaluations, relatively speaking... Um, Nobody really implemented, like zero. Honestly, you know, I had a vision of uh, all kinds of people implementing, not many did. So then I uh, studied with Michael Fullan for a while at the University of Toronto, who's kind of a mentor of mine and always been generous and uh, helpful to me in a big way. And I kind of said, well, now that I've learned these things from Fullan, how do we turn that into some form of professional development? This was when he was writing the book Change Forces. And uh, so we created this model called. Um, Um, a learning consultant and i studied that around 1998 and then then i changed the name to instructional collaborator around 1999 something like that 2000 got a lot of funding from u.s government to work on this thing called uh, instructional collaborators and then i wrote a paper about instructional collaborators when i came back i thought i'm going to change the name for the journalist staff development i think i'm going to change the name to instructional coaches and I submitted it, and that became the first, as far as I know, the first significant um, article about what we would call instructional coaching. And um, since that time, that was around 2004, I think, we've continually refined uh, our model of instructional coaching. And my big question is, you know, what's the most powerful way to support teachers so they can have a bigger impact on kids? And just to say one more thing about that and then wrap up quickly, we believe the only way we'll have the schools our kids deserve is if teachers are treated like professionals, which is to say, we call that a partnership and it involves recognizing them as people who should have control over what happens in their classroom to a great extent, to have a voice, um, to engage in dialogue. And it's 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 change that happens from the inside out, not from the outside in. And And so we've been studying that for a long time.
1: I feel very grateful to have had so many different high performers on my podcast over the past few years. And whether it be an Olympic gold medalist, a professional athlete, a best selling author, or a top researcher, the one common thread that always reveals itself is the fact that every one of them pushes themselves to continually grow and learn within their own role. Jim is a perfect example of this. He's always pushing himself to learn more in order to better understand the work he does in the field of instructional coaching. Over the past year he has taken a deep dive into further research and I wanted to kind of pick his brains and ask him what it is he feels most compelled to share with the world through his work based on his recent learning. This is what he had to say. And that's what we dove into in the first two episodes. And and I had so many people send me messages and a few people I know for sure signed up for your programs as a result of our initial discussions. And I want to share a little bit about Chris Hadfield as I
0: bring
1: uh-huh. this question to you. But, you know, Chris Hadfield being a fellow Canadian, amazing uh, human being who spends so much time in space. And I once heard a talk from him where he talked about being in the International Space Station and, and spending six months in space and taking so many incredible photos of Earth from above. And every day he would take these with every circumnavigation of the mm. globe, he would take more and more photos. And he would take the chip out from his camera and put it in his pocket uh, so it didn't float away. And he would take more photos, mm. and look at them, and was just, even though he, he had taken the photos from space and he looked at them every day, he was in awe of the photos. And when, when he returned to Earth, he thought to himself, what am I going to do with all of this? I've learned so much by just looking at the earth from above. And he felt compelled to share those photos with the world. And he ended up creating this uh, coffee table book with all of Mm -hmm. his best photos. But that idea of feeling compelled to share his learning, uh, that's what I want to ask you about. And uh, based on being in the field of instructional coaching for more than two decades now, as well being a lifelong learner yourself who is constantly in search of knowing and understanding more. What is it that you feel most compelled to share with the world now based on your life's body of work?
0: Well, I would say that um, the most important thing in terms of interactions with other people is to honor their autonomy as people and so uh i think we have a lot of backwards ways of thinking about things we think and i have them too i don't mean to say this in a judgmental way but we we think i just need to tell that person and then they'll they'll do it but i think um this notion that we can come up with an idea and force it on people is actually dehumanizing and it sucks the life right out of them And then people just go to workshops, they don't see the value of it. And if you flip things around where you start with what's the concern about my kids that needs to be addressed, and then you help the person work from that perspective and start to think about, well, what are different strategies I could use to get that? When you start there, it's that idea of the energy of of learning. And, And learning is a beautiful thing when people are truly learning. They're more fully alive. I'll never. A great analogy for me, and you reminded me of it is when I um, first learned how to use uh, Netscape. And some of our listeners are going, like, well, there was a time before there was no internet. But when I first learned how to use the World Wide Web, you know, in case nobody knows what Netscape is, and I was, I couldn't it was so cool. You know, you could look up this, you could look up that, and we'd never been able to do this before. And then I would show it to people and then they'd sit up for hours and they'd come back and tell me how happy they were to have had this new thing that they couldn't do before. And to me, that's kind of in the ideal scenario. That's how learning takes place. But it's, it's especially going to be powerful if it starts with what the person's interested in, as opposed to if it starts with me telling you, this is what I think you need to do. And I, I think as I mentioned it before, that inside out versus outside in. Today, I would say that's, that's probably the most important thing. We would call that partnership, positioning yourself as a partner.
1: So whenever I have Jim on the show, like any guest really, I do my prep work ahead of time. And in Jim's case, even though I already know quite a bit about who he is and the work he does, I still like to review videos that I've seen of his or read blogs about his work to kind of get me in the mindset and get me ready to interview him. And I'm always so impressed by how well read Jim is and how he is so quick to reference the work of others as a foundation for his own learning and his own context And when I think about Jim, I think of a quote from Brian Herbert. And the quote is this, The capacity to learn is a gift. The ability to learn is a skill. But the willingness to learn is a choice. Jim is always learning and so ready to share that learning with others. And rather than take on a knowledge authority, expert stance, He always puts himself in the learner's seat in order to ultimately do his best work. This is one of the things I love about Jim and the conversations that I have with him. I wanted to speak with him about his recent aha moments and new insights he has developed as a result of the research he has done. This is what he had to say. Yeah. And that aligns with your partnership principles. And when you think of yourself as a learner, I know you spent the last year doing a lot of research and really creating this time and space to do intense research. And I I don't want to ask you, like, what did you used to think and what you now think? But how has your own learning changed over the last year with all of the research you've done? Like, what new kind of aha moments or insights have kind of awoken you even more?
0: Well, I'll talk about two two things if that's okay. One of them is it's probably something you've explored a lot in your podcast, but the power of habits. I'm not as convinced of it as some people are, James Clear and others like. And I'm not an expert on the research on habits, but what I understand is a lot of the research that's used for habits um, is actually taken with university students who are probably the easiest person to sit and put habits in place, and still about half of them don't put the habits in place. I mean, if you're living in a residence and somebody's cooking your food, and you just have to go to class, that's not quite the same as having a job and two toddlers, and you're a single parent. So, a lot easier. But nonetheless, I think all those books on habits have identified a nice uh, way of thinking about change, and that you identify what's the trigger or their cue, and then what do I do after the cue, and then um, and then to step back and say, what's the reward I get out of this. And let's say you have a habit, and I'm really interested in particular in how that works for communication. So let's say you have a habit of judging other people, moralistically judging other people, you know, looking down on people saying, I don't know how that person ever got a degree to teach or subtle little comments like, uh, well, that's not the way I would do it. You know, things that communicate I'm better than you and put the other person down. And you become aware of it. You go, I want to change that habit. Or maybe it's interrupting. You interrupt conversations all the time. You want to change it. Well, if you can become aware of the cue, I think, I think that the language of habits helps you deconstruct unhealthy habits and replace them with good ones. So if you can become aware, what is the trigger that leads to that action? What's the current reward I'm getting? And what's the new routine I want to put in place? And how can I become aware of a different kind of reward? So let's take interviewings, maybe a better example. If I become aware of the kind of things, maybe it's that um, if I'm really being honest, I want to take control of the conversation. I want to show off how smart I am. Um, I'm bored and I want to get involved. Uh, whatever whatever it is, if you can really be honest with yourself and say, what is the reward I get for interrupting? And then you can say, well, I want to rethink this. Maybe if I don't interrupt, there's a different kind of reward. Actually, the different kind of reward is a better conversation. I communicate more and respect my Conversation partner clearly feels better about the conversation. They like me more, even if you wanted to put it that way. So I'm really interested in how the the, 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 the sort of the structure of habits that these people like James Clear and Wendy Wood and um, Charles Duhigg and BJ Fogg and all those people have written about that structure t- to me is really interesting kind of as a, as a methodology for deconstructing what I do and figuring out why do I do it and how can, I, how can I change it to something more healthy. That would be one thing. The other, the other thing I'll say quickly is I'm um, doing this study, study right now where I have coaches around the world. One's in Germany, uh, one's in uh, Abu Dhabi, and one's in Bangkok, and then there are three in the United States. And every day they're sending me polos, Marco polos, little videos of their experiences for the day. And what I've learned about coaching is, man, it's complex. I mean, they're all doing a million different things. I have a research assistant who works with me. And he said, I said, what "What are you noticing as you watch these videos? He's just typing up notes every day. He said, well, they have to be awfully good at time management. because There's a million things they have to do. And so I I think in, in working with coaches, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I think you have to recognize the incredible complexity of the job and all the many different things you do. One person said about her job, she said, um... I'm either planning for a meeting, at a meeting, or thinking about the meeting I just went to, but that's what I do. So those are the two big things that I'd say, the habits and, and just the overall complexity of the work of a coach.
1: To kind of set the frame for the next part of the conversation, I want to just hit the pause button and ask you to reflect on a moment, let's say in the past week or two, when you have felt emotionally triggered by something. So just take a moment to think about what that situation might have been and what it was that caused that emotional trigger. We're gonna take a look at emotional triggers and the impact that these triggers can have on our own performance as coaches. So in the next part of the conversation, we are going to dive into the impact that emotional triggers can have on our coaching. And by emotional triggers, let's just take a look at what the definition is. Emotional triggers are often called mental health triggers or psychological triggers. They are the things that spark intense negative emotions. This change in emotion can be abrupt and in most cases it will feel more severe than what the trigger would logically call for. Common situations that trigger intense emotions include rejection, betrayal, unjust treatment, challenged beliefs, helplessness or loss of control, being excluded or ignored, disapproval or criticism, feeling unwanted or unneeded, feeling smothered or too needed, insecurity and loss of independence. Those are just a few things that can cause uh, emotional triggers but as a coach and a leader it is important to understand what our emotional triggers are and I asked Jim about this and I asked him to share his thinking about the importance of knowing our triggers and the impact that these triggers can have on our coaching and on our leading. This is what he had to say. I think you've kind you've kind of highlighted an important area, which is self awareness. Mm. Building deeper self awareness is a skill that we can literally build. So, what is your take on that idea of uh, because that's what you're describing? You're describing catching myself being being more self aware of my habitual ways of of uh, being or right. showing going up. And involved in that is, I think, self-awareness with our own emotional triggers as a coach. So can you add some thoughts to that or what might resonate with you in regards to that idea of self-awareness and emotional triggers in coaching?
0: Well, the first thing I'll say is I agree 100%, Like uh, especially since it often happens at the unconscious level. We're not even aware of the fact that this thing's triggering me to be interrupting or judging or whatever. So that makes it even more complicated. But I, I think um, you know I have this little. This is a, 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 an approach to instruction that uh, Keith Lentz and Jan Bolgren and others have put together that I like. They call it cue do review. But I think in some ways that's what happens with this reflection: is like, what's the cue? What do I do? And I want to review where the rewards come come from. And so I think having that, it's kind of like a heuristic for uh, sort of or some tool of interpretation for, or at least giving you a vocabulary for something you're not conscious of. But the other part of it, the review part is (laughs) it's, I'm just laughing because it's really powerful, but it's really, it's really hard to develop the habit is to take time and pause and say, now, how did I, you know, how many conversations did I have today? And when did I interrupt or watch video or whatever it might be? And it could be any number of things, the way you share positive information, the way, uh, the way you listen or any number of different communication habits but but i really am convinced because we had a focus group who did a few different studies with us and i really am convinced that taking time even if it's only just 10 minutes to step back and say what happened what worked what didn't work what will i do differently tomorrow that's a really really that's where i am right now that's the best i've got in terms of what it is use the language as a of cue do and reward as a as a heuristic to look at what's happening and then reflect every day or frequently on how the day went and look back. on. I did this thing too, just to give you one more way of, I call it my grumpy journal. And so I had this little notebook and every time something made me grumpy, I would write it down. I had the thing filled in in no time. I had like pages, <laughs> but looking at the video or not the video, looking at the, the notes, I realized that one thing that makes me grumpy is um, people blocking my path literally or figuratively so if i'm in the shopping market and there's somebody taking up both uh, both sides of the thing and i can't get around them i get irritated or somebody who's just having a real lovely friendly conversation but dude i got to check out here but also people who figuratively block my path who are in meetings and so forth and it's going on and we got to get going here and it, i had no idea that that was a thing and and the and the thing is it's really Heartbreaking in a way is that it—it's pride. Like get the heck out of my way. That's really what I wanted, you know. And so when I realized, you know, you're getting grumpy all the time just because of your pride, it was—it was really helpful, you know. And I'm still grumpy, but not maybe, maybe not quite as much.
1: So what do you what what do you do when you catch yourself now? So you're self aware of that. So do you have a strategy? Do you pause, take a breath? Do you, you know, how do you deal with it?
0: Okay, so first off, I try to be proactive. And again, I'm not great. I mean, I'm working on it. But I love what Adam Grant says about the distinction between um, task conflict and person conflict. And so I try to be really clear. This is not personal. This is a task conflict. Uh Second thing is, I think, getting grumpy. My way of thinking about it is to to bore down to the root cause. What's really... I don't think you need to... uh, this is a change in my way of thinking. I th- I used to talk about anger as a toxic emotion. Now I think what you need to do is you need to understand your emotions because they're just signals. But if I get if I start to feel grumpy and I can figure out what the root cause is, you know, actually it's my pride or actually it's it's often pride and I can recognize actually this is not valuable. On the other hand, sometimes anger, if you want to go there, is a really powerful thing. You know, there's a lot of social justice movements. There's a lot of good things people have done because they've like they've had enough, and let's channel that energy. But is the inner is the anger pushed by pride, or is or is the anger pushed by the desire to do good? I think that's an important question to ask yourself. So I think reflecting on where it comes from, reflecting on what's happening in and I think I go into conversations now, again, Adam Grant says, um, to think like a scientist. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, this is an interesting situation. I wonder what I can do with this as opposed to how dare they say that to me. You know, I think, I think uh, that's given me some, a a little distance, a little opportunity to not get sucked into because once it gets emotional and personal, the conversation's over, I'd really rather have the conversations. That's that think like a scientist idea.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Um, I listened to a podcast with Jordan Peterson and Andrew Huberman Uh, two fascinating individuals. And it was around the the neuroscience of dopamine and um, the dopamine cycles. And one of the things that they talked about was this idea of uh, when we're feeling triggered, uh, the old way of thinking was that it was the prefrontal cortex immediately interpreting the signals from the body and then reacting right away. And they said that Um, the ability a person has to cognitively reframe in that moment and look at for example somebody's blocking your way you're pissed off and then suddenly go through at least three or four examples of of why that's happening for example oh well they're just having a conversation with a friend obviously Mm. or they're unaware that i'm here right now or maybe they're preoccupied with a family member who's ill so it's Mm creating possible scenarios that they might be going through even though they blocked you immediately sends at a subconscious level neurochemicals that help us tap into our relaxed our parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. so it it, it was very fascinating and saying this is a skill that people need to build is that ability to look at what's really happening Mm -hmm. and it helps us depersonalize and then and then uh, soften the emotional trigger. But I just wanted to add that in because I listened to it uh, just the other night.
0: Well, there's a great story. And I think it's from Roger Fisher, who was an expert on negotiation at Harvard. He wrote the really famous book, Getting to Yes. And he talks about being in a meeting and, or uh, like a present conference or something, or like a conference room at a conference. And uh, somebody's like tapping their pen or something. And he's just getting more and more annoyed by this person just tapping. They're like, like, put your thing away and just listen to the presenter. It's really annoying. And then he realizes, oh, it's actually the radiator making the noise. So he, the whole time he'd been angry, but the cause wasn't the, the pen. The because there was no pen. It was the radiator. <laughs>
1: In the last part of our conversation, Jim and I talk about the leadership skills necessary to coach well and what the best schools and leaders do to help coaches flourish within their role. Of course, there are big things that need to be focused on in coaching, but there are so many details and smaller things that matter. And a quote that comes to mind when I think of this is from famous university basketball coach John Wooden. And what he says is, It's the little details that are vital. Little things make big things happen. There's no question that coaches are busy people. They have many demands placed on them, and with every demand outside of coaching comes less time to actually coach. And as Jim says, the coaching cycle takes three to four hours with each teacher to complete. So you imagine in a week... Um, Having to complete the coaching cycle with each teacher takes three to four hours. So if you're working with, let's say, five or six teachers, that's 20, 24 hours right there. Even more if you're working with uh, more teachers. To be effective, though, coaches also need a system of support to do their best work. So in this part of the conversation, Jim shares his insight into what the best schools do to support their coaches. So, listen to what he has to say. So, I I wanted to share with you that I watched a video the other day. Uh, I think it just came out. I'm going to put the video in the show notes. But um, you outlined seven success factors uh, for coaching, which are different than the partnership principles. The partnership Principles are one of these success factors, but I want to read these seven uh, factors to you and then ask you a question about that. So you outlined the idea of partnership principles as being one of the success factors, the cycle the coach follows, the communication skills the coach has, the data the coach gathers, the teaching strategies the coach has, and the sixth and seventh are the leadership skills the coach has. And the system of support that they have so i really want to focus on the sixth and seventh factors right now in regards to success uh, for coaching and the idea of leadership skills that the coach has and the system of support they have and how these two play a critical role in helping them to flourish or not so can we just double click on the sixth factor the leadership skills that the coach has and can you just share and unpack what you feel to be the essential leadership skills a coach needs and the importance of always striving to be the best leader that we can be to have the positive impact that we desire within our role as coaches. So what are your thoughts with that sixth one? Then I wanna to jump to the seventh one uh, before we end the show.
0: I'll be happy to uh, talk about the sixth one, but I actually think you probably know more about it than I do given all the people you've talked to and all the reading you've done about leadership. But But what I'll say is, uh, as I organize it now, it's interesting because I am in kind of a leadership role. I have a little company, and so I lead people, and so I get to be like a uh, sample of one for research studies all the time, and I'm always trying stuff out, seeing how it goes, and um, and my success rate's probably less than 50%, but there are some things that seem to work, but The way I write about it is I think you have to be, uh, lead yourself and then you have to lead others. And when you lead yourself, there's not really anything here that's kind of astonishing, but it's about what is the purpose behind what I do and, um, how do I, how do I manage my time so that I can focus on my purpose? And then, um, how do I make sure I'm paying attention to what's happening around me? How do I reduce hurry in my life? And then how do I have compassion towards myself, self-compassion? At our conference this year, Kristen Neff was a keynoter, and she talked beautifully about the power of self-compassion. I don't want to trivialize self-compassion, but I think at the bare minimum, it's becoming aware of what are the things that can inhibit my ability to, to internal things, I think, that could inhibit my ability to be successful. and to. To lead others, I need to lead myself. And then when you lead others, there's a lot of wonderful ideas about this, but I really believe in Liz Wiseman's idea of being a multiplier versus a diminisher and being conscious of the the unconscious things you can do that lead to being a diminisher, like having too much enthusiasm or uh, trying to push people faster than they can really do it. And I love that distinction of multiplier, diminisher, just as sort of a, a way to think about life. I loved, it's an old idea now, but that Jim Collins idea of balancing ambition with humility. In my experience working with people, when things are really happening, they they are ambitious for change and deeply respectful of the people they work with. And then there's some other, I think, pr- pretty clear things. I think you, similar to what Colin says, I think, I think, and this isn't really what I've written about just yet, but what I've been thinking about is you need to balance out. Um, and this comes from the other personal goal, but you need to ensure that the people you're working with have a shared sense of purpose and you need to hold them true to that sense of purpose. As you look at the culture, you can't let destructive cultures take over, but in, in pointing people back to the purpose, because if people aren't looking at the purpose, they're looking at themselves and they're upset because, oh, you didn't pick me or you didn't give me enough credit or you didn't do all this stuff. If they're totally focused on the purpose, they don't care about that. But the other part is you need to be really, you need to have an attitude of benevolence towards the people. And you need to say, look, I really want you to flourish. But in this environment for you to flourish, you need to do this. And really the purpose of kids, that's more important than you, mm-hmm. but I'm not diminishing you either. I really, really want you to flourish. But if, if push comes to shove though, the, the mission is what matters. And so I think you're always, it's kind of like ambition and humility, but there's this idea of here's the purpose. And here's how I'm responding to you to make sure you're, you're helping us go after that purpose, not in a controlling way either. It's honoring the autonomy of the person. But when you lead an organization like a school, when people are committed to the purpose, when they, they have a really clear sense of we're here for kids and this is what we're trying to do. And we're all in it together. It's a lot easier than everybody's upset because they're not getting their, 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 whatever it is they think they deserve, you know? So yeah. that's those are my thoughts about leadership. What do you what would you add to that based on the conversations you've had?
1: I think the quote that comes to mind is from Zig Ziglar where he says humility will open more doors than arrogance ever will. Mm. And and when I think of your work and the leaders I've interviewed and what I've come to understand is that there are leaders who operate from their head and they're so cognitive and everything is so cognitively based of course and there's mm. all hard thinking on strategic mission and this and that, and they forget the heart and soul of connection. Mm -hmm. And what I've been inspired by, you know, by watching you and your videos and hearing you speak is that, yeah, you operate from, from the cognitive space in the research you do, but through coaching and through the way you communicate with people, it's connecting with their heart and soul. And it comes out in your language and everything that you do and the way you make people feel, whether it be in a workshop or in the language you use when you're uh, sharing your videos. So I think for me, what I've learned the most is that the, the very best leaders leave from the heart and soul and they they know when to do that but they also know when to peel back and make it about the 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 strategic vision of the school so i think that's what i've come to better understand and when you think of school systems so the seventh factor for success in what ways and i don't want to make this a negative spin because i'm very much uh i like to look at the positive and what's working rather than what's not uh, and take a strengths based approach, but when you think about school systems, where do school systems fall short in regards to helping uh, coaches really thrive within their role?
0: Mm.
1: What is your advice to leaders to ensure that that doesn't happen?
0: Yes, there's a number of things you say about that, but let's say we had a vision of where it's working well. Uh, I like your strength-based analogy. By the way, I think as you were talking, I do think humility and that idea of the head and the heart, those are really, really great const- And then, as you were talking, I I was thinking. You know, one thing. Other thing I would say, the trouble is, you there's probably a book somewhere, like 572 ways to be a good leader. But um, learner, you know, I I think someone who figures thinks I've got it all figured out. This kind of goes with humility. They're they're gonna they're gonna have a hard time too. I think um, in terms of um, support for coaches, role clarity is really important. The the coach. Uh, and, it, and whomever they report to have to be really clear on what's important and what's not important. We would say, uh, if you work with, uh, teachers in instructional coaching, it's going to take you three to four hours a week to work with a teacher. And so every time you're asked to do other things that take three to four hours, if you're a full-time coach or a half-time coach, that's one teacher you can't meet. Wow. So knowing what you can do and what you can't and thinking it through carefully, you know, what's the, vi- so if you're, you're, um, Asked to do walkthroughs, for example, where you go in and observe the classroom with a clipboard and you've got a checklist, and then you leave a note at the end or maybe have a conversation. That makes you look a lot like an administrator. And, um, and often people aren't completely frank with administrators because they feel like they're evaluated and they want to look good. And being an administrator can be a block to candor. And so that little thing like that, I mean, to think through in terms of role clarity, what will I do? What won't I do? What's going what's to help me have the biggest impact on kids and make me more effective as a coach? There's a lot of things like what's our policy around confidentiality? Um, are we clear on our teaching practices, what I call an instructional playbook? Does the principal understand or whomever it is, the person they do, they understand what coaching is? And is there a philosophical alignment? And I'd say those things kind of all come together that uh, well and the other thing is I think the leader should be acting as a coach and also be being coached I mean um they should walk the talk if they're expecting other people to do it they should do it too and when you have a situation where the principal can say I have this coach who's a cognitive coach or a leadership coach or whatever she or he might be um that speaks about the fact that I'm not saying you do it but I'm not going to do it you know, I got one more thing. I think is to be strategic about how information is shared within the system. I talk about learning architecture in a school, so that if something happens in a classroom that's cool, that the teacher can share it with the coach, the coach can share it with all the other coaches, and they share it with their principals. And like in a matter of a day, a really cool idea is spread across the whole system. And you can do it through email, but doing it in some kind of way that's uh, wired for <laughs> For trans- transition or something, transmission is really, really, I think it really makes a big difference. Plus, the coaches need to be coached. I mean, they need to be supported too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: In closing, I
1: want to draw your attention back to the previous two episodes that Jim and I recorded in 2021. If you liked what you heard today, please check out the show notes of today's episode for the links to the previous two episodes. As well, you can find links to Jim's work and how to get in touch with him if you want to have a conversation about how he can best support you in your role as a coach, or if you just want to find out more about instructional coaching in general. In the final part of our conversation, Jim shares how he wants to live his life and the mark he wants to one day leave on the world. Well, that's great, great advice, and I know that we we don't have much more time today. But the purpose was really to to reconnect and have this discussion about leadership. And I really appreciate your time. And you know, I, I just want to close with Denzel Washington. I, I heard him uh, share a story one time, and what he talked about was the ghosts of unfulfilled potential. Mm. And what he said was, <clears throat> when we're on our deathbed, uh, we'll be surrounded by well, the, not necessarily if we actually have done great work in our life and we've committed ourselves to it, but Uh, We don't want to be surrounded by the ghosts of unfulfilled potential who are pissed off at us and upset and angry because they gave us gifts that we didn't act on and talents that we didn't let shine and ideas that we didn't act on. And he asked the audience, like, how many ghosts will be around uh, your bedside when your time comes? And he shares that story as a metaphor to to really think about our life and our life purpose, and to follow that purpose and do the hard work necessary to fulfill our potential. But when you look back at your life one day, what evidence will you have that indicates that you lived a, a fully complete life and and really uh, fulfilled your potential the way that you wanted to fulfill it and have the impact that you desired on the world?
0: I like the tragically hip reference in there of the fully completely, but. Um... I have this really good friend of mine, a great, great guy. And he says, um, he says, I always think if I die and I go to heaven and God's up there at the pearly gates waiting for me. And he says to me, when you were in California, did you hike through the Sequoias? He said, when you went to the ocean, did you go swimming in the ocean? He said, when you were in that town that had that lovely little winery, did you go drink the wine? Did you look at the sunset? He said, I put those things all out there for you. Did you do those things? And I, I, I don't always swim in the, in the water and I don't always do those things, but my friend does. And I love, I love that idea of like, we've been given this world. Are we really, I put people around you every day. Did you learn from those people? Did you talk to them? Did you get to know about their lives? You know? And, uh, and then that time when you're in Europe or wherever it is, did, did you do that thing? Cause I put it there just for you, you know, and, I mean, whether you have any kind of faith perspective on life or not, I love that idea that it's presented before us Do mm-hmm. we take advantage of it? so I, I don't. I don't know um i think I think I don't know that there's an answer. like I don't think there's a stop point. Okay, I've done it mm-hmm. But I would say for me, and I'd say on a scale of one to five one to ten, I'm probably about somewhere around four or five on this. But i would say for me the true measure of my life is do i live with integrity which is to say do my as parker palmer says do i live a a a whole life where my external reactions my external actions reflect my internal beliefs so if i really believe you should be benevolent to other people am i really benevolent if i really believe other people's opinions count do i really listen to them and so To me, life is a journey towards that wholeness, that sense of integrity. And honestly, I'm not there, but I don't, maybe I'll never get there, but I'm better now than I was. I'm on the journey. And I think the other, and I'll stop after this, but the other thing about it is people want to define you by your past. And they say, oh, Jim, he had to do that grumpy journal. He's really a grumpy person. Or, oh, they're that kind of person's, uh, they don't, inattentive or any number of negative judgments you can make. But the past it means nothing. And really, you can have a lot of anxiety about the future, but the future means nothing. It's this conversation right now. It's this minute right now. It's this person right now. What can I do now? Maybe I'll blow it. Well, then I got another minute to try it again. And our lives are made up of those individual minutes. It's not made up of the history, and it's not made up of our anxieties about the future. It's this second, this minute, this time right now. So I'd say striving to live with wholeness, that is to be the person I want to be, in the moment would be the way I would say what success looks like today.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. And that connects with what my mentor says, which is to that our job is to stitch as many present moments together as possible. And maybe we'll only get to stitch three before we're ruminating about the past or projecting into the future. But that idea is stitching those present moments together. And that that is where all the good stuff happens. So, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. I love our conversations. Um, I'll put in the show notes where, where everybody can find uh, all the information they need on you. But uh, thank you very much, Jim.
0: My pleasure. I love these conversations and I hope things are well with you.
1: Okay. Thanks, Jim. Everybody. Thank you uh, for listening to this episode with uh, Jim Knight. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. As always, everyone, I want to thank you for tuning into my episodes and uh, for tuning into today's episode with Dr. Jim Knight. If you liked what you heard today, please share this episode with anyone who you feel will benefit from listening. I hope that you keep learning and growing one day at a time. And with that, have a great day and thanks again for listening.